That was annoying. <laughs> Isn't waiting annoying? But the point is, when you're in God's waiting room, He's doing a special work in your life. And it's probably one of the most difficult places to wait. That's what we want to explore this morning. As we look at In God's Waiting Room, and today we are beginning a new five-week series on the life of Elijah, the greatest prophet that we see in the Old Testament. Here are some of the themes. Uh, next week, faith when hope runs out, playing with fire, and God speaks in the dark, or our garden, uh, variety, jealousy. I would encourage you to go on the website and look at the passages for each of these messages and study them on your own. That's how I always encourage you to do that. This is just a stepping off point. So when we're studying a particular book or we're studying a particular character like this, work this into your own Bible study time and you do your own work at discovering who this character is and uh, it can be really a wonderful thing to build into your time alone uh, with God. <clears throat> now in order to understand who Elijah was, we have to look at his historical context. Now, as you guys read through the Bible, you run across the great kings of Israel, Saul and David and Solomon. Now, here's a map that represents Israel during Solomon's reign, and you see how expansive it is, the Israelite kingdom and their influence seen in the yellow there. Uh, this was Israel at its zenith. Unfortunately, Solomon was the wisest man, but he was a very sinful man, and he sold out. He gave his heart to other gods, and therefore God said, Listen, Solomon, when you die, your kingdom is going to be divided, and that's exactly what happened. We see in this map what happened after Solomon died. The 12 tribes divided, and you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And what eventually happened, as you know, is that these particular uh, people in these kingdoms eventually went into captivity because God was judging them for their rebellion. The northern kingdom went more quickly after 200 years into captivity in Babylon, and the southern kingdom lasted at about 300 years. But we're going to be focusing our time during this series on the northern kingdom because that's where Elijah spoke for God or he was a prophet. That's what it means to be a prophet, to speak uh, for God. Now, the first king in the northern kingdom after the civil war that took place uh, was Jeroboam. Jeroboam. 1 Kings 13, 33. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Anyone who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. So he started out the northern kingdom in rebellion against God, worshiping other gods, and it continued all the way through those 200 years, 19 different kings. Every one of them was evil. Now we're going to be talking about King Ahab as we move throughout this series, and he uh, was the worst up to this point. First uh, Kings 16:31, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the first king, the son of Nebat. Now, what uh, they're saying here is that's bad enough. 
that he continued Jeroboam's legacy. It gets worse. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So what happened was, is he married Jezebel. Jezebel, her father was king of the Sidonians, and they worshipped Baal. So when Jezebel was married to Ahab, she said, listen, we're going to worship Baal. In fact, she made it illegal to worship the God of the Israelites. It's very unusual to have the wife of a king mentioned in Scripture. The reason Jezebel's name is mentioned is because she was the power behind the throne. She was running the family business. And uh, she also is a character in many of the stories we're going to look at. So Jezebel brought the worship of Baal. And Baal worship was just detestable. It was so, so pagan. The prophet Baal uh, was the, the god, not the prophet, but the god Baal uh, was the god of fertility and rain, good weather for crops. And so what they would do is that they would present sacrifices to Baal as well as they would have sexual relationships with the priest or priestesses in order to seal the deal. Now that's a very, uh, a very sinful way to go about any type of worship. But again, it was rebellion against the true God. Now if things really got bad, what they would do is they would actually sacrifice their children. In fact, there was a, a temple of Baal that was unearthed by archaeologists uh, not too long ago in Megiddo. And what they found was is the temple, and then there was a cemetery where you had infants who had been sacrificed. That's how bad the worship of Baal was. So that's the northern kingdom. That's how bad uh, the situation was. If we look in verse 32 uh, of 1 Kings 16. He erected, that is Ahab, erected an altar for Baal. In the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did now an Asherah pole. You may have heard of that before. Uh, they would go to the high places because that was closest to the clouds because Baal was, you know, gods of the clouds and the weather and things of that nature. And it was an agrarian society, so they wanted lots of rain for their crops. And they would put up this pole that looked like a sculpture of Baal's wife, and her name was Asherah. So they called it an Asherah And that's where they worshipped Baal. That's where they made their sacrifices and things of that nature. So as you read throughout the Old Testament, you see these poles going up. And then in the southern kingdom, you had a few righteous kings. They would tear the poles down. And then somebody else would come along and put the poles back up again. Idol worship. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now that's saying something. So God was going to deal with Ahab and Jezebel, and he chose Elijah to do it. First Kings 17.1, we get our introduction to Elijah. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. 
Now, who is Elijah? Well, we know that he was from Tishba. Uh, we really have no idea where that is. We do know it was in Gilead. And Gilead, uh, there's many mountains in that particular region. There's a good chance that Elijah was a mountain man. He was somebody who probably wasn't that sophisticated, that uh, educated, uh, somebody that was just rough and tough and rugged and muscular and tan and a big guy. Uh, that's who Elijah probably was. He was a mountain man. And God chose a mountain man to confront the sophisticated Ahab and Jezebel in their sin. So he said, Elijah, I want you to go and speak on my behalf to Ahab and Jezebel. I could just imagine the scene of this mountain man walking into this temple, <laughs> uh, this palace, that is, that Ahab and, Ahab and Jezebel were in, and, and the mountain man coming up to the king and saying, Listen, what did he say? As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, before whom I represent, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. You're going to have a drought. There's not going to be any rain. It means there's not going to be any precipitation, not even dew. That means all your crops are not going to grow. That means you're not going to have anything to eat, anything to drink. Your cattle are going to die, and you're going to die. That's a pretty serious message, right? That's not a message you want to bring to anybody. That's a king. But Elijah did that because God told him to do that. And it was going to happen. Well, what I see from this is that Elijah was a courageous man. I'm probably thinking Elijah, as he's getting ready to do this, thinking this could be my last day. This is a suicide mission, right? <laughs> I mean, Ahab's taking me down right there, but I'm going to do it anyway. My friends... We as Christ followers need to be courageous. In fact, Ezekiel talks about the need for men to stand in the gap, for men and women to stand for the truth of God. Verse 30, And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the Lamb, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. God was looking for someone to stand for him, to be his representative, but he found none. In light of everything that we studied during our parenting series and how, how uh, messed up our culture is, it is so important that we, as Christ followers, speak truth. We are to be salt and light. We talk a lot about light, but we're to be salt. Salt's a preservative in our culture. That's the whole idea behind that verse, to be salt and light. We're to be a preservative. We are to speak truth to remind people that, hey, we're going in the wrong direction here. So when you're in conversations with coworkers and neighbors and people on the sporting field, as you have opportunity, 
when a subject comes up that you can speak into with grace and understanding, not, not to be judgmental or anything, but to say, hey, listen, I've, I've got a different opinion here. I've got a different opinion about abortion. I've got a different opinion about the fact when you, you take Christ's name in vain and defame God and attack other Christians. I've got a different opinion about a particular movie that is not Christ-honoring or a TV show or whatever comes up where God prompts you to say, Say something. Be my representative. Speak the truth in love to people. Be somebody who's going to stand in the gap. We need to stand in the gap for one another. Right now we've got a great ministry, Kids City, going on, where kids are being discipled. Now we're meeting in here. And I talk with Michelle Howe on a weekly basis, our interim children's director, and we're always talking about how can we get more people to serve? How can we get more people discipling these kids? We need more teachers that will teach these kids God's words. We need more helpers that will love on these kids and do crowd control and that kind of thing. Will you stand in the gap for these kids? And it takes courage sometimes. <laughs> Maybe the babies, I don't know. If you don't like crying, that would take courage. But the point being is we need more people serving, discipling our children. And especially if your children are being served, I really believe you should be back there at least once a month your team discipling each other's uh, children. So please talk to Michelle. Write it on your communication card. I'm interested in serving. There's all kinds of ways that we can stand in the gap. What is the area in your life that God is speaking to you where you need to be more courageous for Him? We tend to hold back. We don't want to rock the bow. We don't want to you know, get people thinking negatively about us. Well, hello, we're here to proclaim that God is God and that uh, He has all the answers and that He is our God. All right, well, we move on to verse 2 and 3 of 1 Kings 17. And the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is the east of the Jordan. Now, wait a second. That doesn't make any sense. I mean... God just said, listen, I want you to go and tell Ahab that I am going to judge him for his sin by withholding the rain. Now, you would think God would say, and I want you to show up every day in the palace courts and remind Ahab that I am God and that he's rebellious. No, God does things in strange ways sometimes from our perspective. He says, okay, go make a big splash and then run. Run as fast as you can because Ahab wants you dead. <laughs> Go hide someplace. He's going to be ticked. Now, of course, God could have protected Elijah, but he had a specific reason why he wanted him to run. First, one way to protect him physically, but God wanted to do a work in Elijah's life. Elijah was not yet ready for his life work. He needed more training. He needed time in God's waiting room. It's interesting, the brook Cherith, that word in the Old Testament is used in two different ways. It means to cut off or cut down. Cut off or cut down. Cut off, the idea of cutting 
away things in your life, cutting away relationships in your life. And then cutting down is like chopping down a tree. It's like cutting certain sins out of your life. And that's what God does in a waiting room in your life. He changes your life. He changes the scenery of your life, the circumstances of your life, in order that He might work within you, in order that He might bring sin out of your life and help you to make Him more the center of your life. That's the nature of a waiting room. So my question for you is, are you in a waiting room uh, today? There's all kinds of waiting rooms. For example, some of you that I've talked to, who are our guests, and it's so good to have you if you're our guest this morning uh, at our service, you said, hey, I just moved you know, a month ago or two months ago. Well, that can be a waiting room. And you move away from all your friends, and you move away from your church family, when you move away uh, from a place that you loved, to, for whatever reason you moved here, job transfer, whatever. Now, that can be a waiting room. That can be really difficult. Or possibly it's sickness or injury. You're taken out of the game for that reason. And that's very, very challenging. But that's a waiting room. God wants to do work in your life. Or maybe it has to do with your children. Maybe it has to do uh, with a, maybe your young mom. And, oh, every day is the same. And you feel like you're getting nowhere. And you are so tired. And you are so bored. <sighs> not that you don't have anything to do, but it's not stimulating intellectually. <laughs> you're in a waiting room. Or maybe your your child has special needs. And you're devoting so much time and energy to helping them just navigate through life. That can be a waiting room. Or maybe your child is rebellious and you just don't know what to do. That can be a waiting room. Or maybe you're an empty nester. Your kids are gone and you're looking at your spouse saying, what did we do before we had kids? <laughs> what, what did we talk about? Uh, what did we fill our time uh, with? Uh, or possibly it's a marital struggle. That can be a real waiting room. Maybe it's a divorce. That's a real waiting room, no doubt. Or maybe you're caring for your elderly parents and everything is kind of surrounded around them and, you know, you love them, and you're, but at the same time, it's just a lot of energy and, and it's hard. What's your waiting room today? You know, we have little waiting rooms, big waiting rooms, but life, our spiritual life, is a series of waiting rooms. You know, you're going to continue to have them. And the important thing is not to view them as interruptions, not to view them as barriers or obstacles, but to view them as places where God can do His best work in your life and prepare you for even greater works of ministry in the future. Well, let's look at uh, Elijah's waiting room, 1 Kings 17.4. You shall drink from the brook I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. We see a picture of a raven here, and I was doing some background study. They really just are overgrown crows. (laughs) I mean, they're big. we we got about a four-foot wingspan there, but they're just crows. They're scavengers. 
beautiful bird when they get that big. Uh, but at the same time, uh, that's what God was using in his uh, life. And then it goes on in 1 Kings 17, 4, you shall, or excuse me, the same verse, uh, they were to feed you there. So they were taking care of his needs. God always takes care of your needs. 1 Kings 17, 5. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. One thing you notice about Elijah, he always obeyed. He always obeyed. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. Now, we're not talking about a weekend camping trip here. We're not talking about, you know, four-month backpacking. Kevin McDonough is sitting down here, and he's a big outdoorsman, and we've been good friends for many years, and he's told me about all his adventures. And he says, Dan, you want to come? And I say, well, I don't think so. <laughs> but this guy, I mean, if you're... An outdoors guy. Kevin, just raise your hand there. Okay, talk to this guy. Uh, he is the master of outdoor activities and all kinds of adventures and things of that nature. Now, Kevin, this is not a month, not a backpack trip. What's the longest backpacking trip you've been on? A week, okay, all right. Well, you'd probably enjoy a month. I mean, you'd probably enjoy taking the whole year off and just going all over the place. But the point being is this is not a short-term thing. Scholars believe he was there for either from a year to two years, sitting by a brook. That's a long time. Waiting rooms are not places we want to be. Waiting rooms are painful. Waiting rooms are not the life that we desire. Waiting rooms are confusing Waiting rooms are burdensome. But again, God does His best work there. So we lived by that brook for one or two years. Then in verse 6, And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So he took care of his needs. They had this brook, bubbling brook, going by Cup of water anytime he wants. And then these ravens would bring bread and uh, meat to him. Now, when you're in a waiting room, Chili's does not deliver. Or on the border. Or even Jimmy John's. They can't deliver to the waiting room. That's outside of their territory. Okay? What scholars believe is that the, the ravens would bring bread... And then they would bring uh, meat. Now, how do you bring meat? Well, they believe possibly it was regurgitated meat. He didn't starve. <laughs> but it wasn't the finest cuisine. It was a waiting room. You don't get the finest cuisine in a waiting room. And it wasn't stockpiled, right? Just like manna came every day. He had to wait for those ravens to come. So I don't know, getting around 6 o'clock in the evening and looking for the ravens, getting kind of hungry for that great great meal. Um, and uh, he had to wait. Wait, 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 wait. And, and that's the nature of being in a waiting room. We have to wait daily. We have to wait hourly on God to show up. And that's so hard for us. It's the hardest thing we can do. 
we're so desirous to be self-dependent and be in control. But when we have to put it all in God's hands, it drives us nuts. But that's what God wants us to do. That's one of the primary purposes of a waiting room is to understand who God is and to trust in Him and depend upon Him and lean upon Him in the midst of our confusion. And that's what, that's what Elijah had to do. He had to wait for those ravens to come. And we need to learn to do that. So many of us, you know, think way too much about the future. That's good to plan, but we're anxious about the future. Again, Jesus said, don't worry about the future, not trouble today. Stay focused on today. Do what you can do today. Lean on God's power today. Then in verse 7 it says, And after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So, again, remember, it stopped raining. Elijah prayed that it would stop raining. It stopped raining, and eventually the brook dried up. And you can imagine him kind of watching it dwindle. And some of you in the, some of you in a waiting room right now, and it's getting worse. It was bad at the beginning, but it kind of like as the months go on, this isn't getting better. It's getting worse. So he's looking at the, the water, and you know it's a little more narrow stream. It's not rushing anymore. <laughs> it's dribbling. And then it's just wet sand. Then it's parched. Sometimes in a waiting room, things go from bad to worse. You read that happen? Huh? Bad to worse. Things were bad before, but this is even worse. Maybe you're there today. And you're thinking, what happened? I just got used to bad, and now it's gotten worse. What's going to happen next? Well, that's where you trust in God, and that's so hard to do. And next week, we're going to see how God provided. So you're going to have to come back next week. I guess you could read it in Scripture, but uh, but still, we're, we're, going to, <laughs> we're going to talk about how God provided for Elijah again and did some incredible miracles. Well, let's talk about in God's waiting room. First of all, first lesson I think we need to learn is to trust in God's love, the trust in God's love. Isaiah 49, 14 through 16, people of Jerusalem are they're going through a waiting room. So, But Zion, Jerusalem, said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And that's the first thing you're going to say in a waiting room. First thing I say I've been through many waiting rooms in my life. And I say, God's forgotten me. Doesn't he know the pain I'm going through? Doesn't he know how tired I am? I mean, I thought God loved me. I thought he was a good God. And I thought my life was supposed to be better than this. And obviously, he doesn't care that much about me. And you really start to doubt the things you really thought you believed a lot, you know? And like, what's going on here? Well, God says, can a woman forget her nursing child and she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Well, typically not, right? I mean, women and God bless mothers. Oh, my. God bless mothers. But even these may forget. We see that in the news, right? It's like, 
What's the deal with that? Why would a woman just turn away her child? It happens. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls, it's Jerusalem, are continually before me. In that day, many times to uh, kind of remind people a memorial, what they would do is they would burn their palm, and then they would rub dirt or some type of substance into it to kind of make a mark. And so whenever they would see it, they'd be reminded of it. And that's the idea here. He said, God says, I got you right here. You think I've forgotten you. You think I don't care. You think I don't love you. You think I don't have your best interest. But man, I am looking at you every day, every moment of every day. That's how much God loves you. And I know you might not feel it right now in your waiting room. You're saying, oh, it's nice to say, Dan, but I haven't felt God in a year. Well, emotions are emotions, but God's there. And he loves you. You've got to remember that. I think it's important that sometimes we, we forget about uh, what we have in unrealistic expectations. Let's look at the definition of God's provision. Everybody has a little bit different idea of how God should be treating them. Some people think, God gives me the most of the things I want. That's my expectation. I am not asking for a perfect life here. But I don't know, maybe a B- minus would be okay, you know, in terms of quality. It's okay. And when, when he doesn't deliver a B-, minus, then they say, what is the deal, God? You don't love me anymore. Well, that, that's not biblical. That's not what God promises. Or the second thing is, God gives me everything I think I need. Now, this is where we say, okay, I realize life is full of a lot of pain and disappointments and things of that nature, but at least God's going to give me the basics. He promises that. But when we determine the basic, it's on our, you know, expectations, and everybody has a different idea of what basics should be, okay? And so when God drops below our basic level, and we've lowered it, oh, oh yeah, it's low. Oh, God, if I were on this level, I mean, I would really be sacrificing for you. And it drops. And you say, okay, God doesn't love me anymore. That's not biblical either. The third thing is God gives me what he knows I need. That is biblical. God knows what you need. You don't know what you need. I don't know what I need. He takes things away that we think we need. But we don't need them. God knows what we need. It. And this is so painful. This is so painful. But as you go through your waiting room, you know, you continue to turn to God. You meditate on Scripture. You draw close to Jesus. You realize it's all about Jesus and His love and His grace. It's not about you. You, don't, you find your identity only in Jesus Christ. And you talk with other Christ followers in your small group and other friends, and you share what it's like in your waiting room. And uh, God ministers to you. And God does great things in your life. The second thing is that trust in God's control. Romans 9, 20 through 21. But who, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? 
as the potter know right over the clay to make out the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. I don't know about you, but I would like to be God. I would like to be in full control of my life. I'd like to call the shots. I'd like to design my life just the way it is. And if you say you don't want to be God, you're lying. Because <laughs> that is the nature of the sinful nature. We want to be God. And uh, one reason God puts us in the waiting room is to remind us you're not me. <laughs> you are not God. You're not in charge. You have no control whatsoever. We like to think we have control. We like to think we have things under, you know, our... Uh, our control, but it's just not true. It's just not true. Uh, hey, he's the mo- he, he's the creator. He's the one who's molding us. Now, if you were molding something, and and, and the thing spoke, hey, what are you doing? You can't do that. And you say, well, I'm, I created you in the first place, and yeah, I can do whatever I want. That's God. Now, the beautiful thing is, is that we know the character of God and His holiness. Now that, you know, when you get up, when you get into these other gods, you know, that people worship, uh, they're not trustworthy. <laughs> when you study other religions, I mean, I'm not trusted in that God. I trust in a holy God who's going to love me in a holy way, who's going to discipline me in a holy way, who's going to watch over me in a holy way. So I can trust Him. There's a popular TV preacher that likes to talk about your best life now. Your best life now. <laughs> There's something the other day, and another preacher said, well, this is your, if this is your best life now, you're not going to heaven. <laughs> right? Because our best life is in heaven. And this particular TV preacher, uh, I have concerns about his theology in that realm, because he, he promises your life can get better. It's all about you, you know. No, 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 no. You can live a strong Christian life and suffer all your life. So I'm concerned when people hear that message like, you know, I'm going to use God to make my life better. No, you, you just give yourself over to God. And He'll take care of you. doesn't promise that uh, you're going to have the best, your best life. That's, that's an American type of thinking that uh, leads people astray and crosses because if you're thinking like, oh, I should have this best life and God's delivering this, you're thinking, what's wrong with God? No, it's not what's wrong with God. It's what's wrong with your expectations. They're unbiblical. They're selfish. Okay? So we don't want to listen to that. All right. Uh, next thing is trusting God's work in you, Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so, not, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the key to waiting rooms. God gets you in a waiting room to get down into your iceberg, way, way deep down where you're not even aware of how sinful you are. And he, he, he allows his Holy Spirit to convict you and to take out those deep, deep roots. Those deep, deep roots of pride. Those deep, deep roots of jealousy, those deep, deep roots of fear, those deep, deep roots of bitterness. And the only way to remove those things are in waiting rooms. And life is just 
you know, blowing along. <laughs> We're not going to be looking down into our soul. <laughs> We're going to say, oh, that's great. <laughs> but man, when life hits the wall, and we're in God's waiting room, and we're not griping, but we're growing. That's your choice. If you're in a waiting room, you can gripe all you want. Oh, yeah, you can gripe. You can complain to other people. But you're not going anywhere. You're going to waste the pain, right? You've heard that phrase, don't waste the pain. If you got pain, use it. Let God use the pain in your life, but don't waste it. That's stupidity to go through pain and not learn from God, but just push against it and say, you know, God, what are you doing to me? Yeah. Uh, so, so God is at work in us to do this. Now, we, we also need to be at work. Work out your own salvation. Through His power, we work in doing this. We've got to cooperate with Him. We've got to say, okay, I'm going to submit to your leadership, God. That's so important. Uh, in conclusion... I want to talk to you about bamboo trees. Bamboo trees. Bamboo trees are an amazing thing. They're like 90 feet tall. But did you know, a Chinese bamboo tree, when you plant the bulb in the ground, there's a little shoot that comes up that at the most grows to an inch over a five-year period. And you've got to keep watering that thing and giving it nutrients for five years. And it's just an inch high. I'm not growing bamboo. <laughs> now, but here's the amazing thing. Is that after five years, what happens at some point that God designed it in this way, that that thing will grow to 90 feet in 90 days. So you go from an inch to 90 feet in 90 days. So what is going on for five years? Well, this is what's going on for five years. What's that? That's a root system, isn't it? If you're going to have a 90-foot tree, you better have a pretty strong root system, especially a bamboo tree. It just kind of goes straight up, very strong. So during these five years, the root system is developing and growing. And once that root system is fully mature, then boom, it can be supported. And what's happening in your life today, and maybe happening, maybe, I don't know where you're at, and happened in my life, uh, God's growing the root system. And, and it's no fun to grow roots. <laughs> Look at me. <laughs> well, I don't see anything different. <laughs> right? It's like dead air. Nothing's happening. But everything is happening. The most important things are happening. And when God gets you out of that waiting room, boom! You know, all of a sudden you just change and people say what happened to you and you say god's grace he did a work in my life and man for the last five years i've been wondering what has he been doing 
and I haven't been able to figure him out, and I've been in all kinds of pain, and I've had some bad attitudes and all that kind of stuff, but he keeps showing me grace, and all of a sudden, I'm a new person. It's because you went through the waiting room and you submitted to his lordship. And it's the most difficult thing you or I will ever do. But, but you know, whatever struggle you're going through today, I want you to reframe it biblically. You're thinking, oh, why did this happen? Why am I out of job? Why is my marriage bad? Why is this? Why is that? You know, reframe it biblically. I'm in God's waiting room. I don't know what He's doing, but I know it's something good. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for my friends today. I know many are in tremendous pain. I just want to thank you that they came today because I know they probably would have preferred to sleep in. They're so depressed. I pray that your Holy Spirit would weave these truths deep into their soul, that they would find comfort and hope. And not that, you know, not that they're going to get chilies tomorrow or uh, Jimmy John's. <laughs> so be that regurgitated meat. But again, the way they think about it will be the fact, okay, this is not a pleasant place to be, but God is doing some good stuff in me. I know He is. I don't know what it is, but He promised that He would. And even if we cause our own waiting rooms, even because of our own sin, Lord, You take that and turn it around and make something beautiful. That is Your tremendous grace. Thank You so much. In Christ's name, amen.